Are you looking for new, creative ways to help you get your head straight? It's not your fault when you're struggling to relax or confidence is holding you back. You just haven't learned the best tools to deal with your situation. Open Forwards helps you break the vicious cycles that are making you unhappy. Head on over to www.openforwards.com and check out our online courses, expert guides, free articles and specialist psychotherapy to help you work, love, play and feel better. That's www.openforwards.com Satnav, the podcast show where we discuss well-being, relationships, work, mental health, parenting, and much, much more. It's December, so we're quickly approaching Christmas. Now, I know not everyone likes Christmas, but I do. It's a time for slowing down, taking a break, and giving myself permission to step away from the goals and ambitions that I'm working towards the rest of the year round. One thing I especially like at Christmas is a bit of comedy. And one of my favourite comedy shows of all time is Curb Your Enthusiasm. Now Larry David, the main guy, the protagonist, he bumbles his way through life, upsetting people, often getting scolded. He's a likeable, unlikable person who doesn't like much other people's company. And from episode to episode, his wife stands back, amazed at his latest foible. She stands there, looks at him and asks, Why would you do that, Larry? So as well as being hilarious, I think this is an interesting question. It's a question that shines a torch on his actions and asks him something about it. Why do that? And this area of psychology is called something. It's called behavioural analysis. And behavioural analysis explores what people do by asking this very question, why? And this why is made up of two things. It's made up of what comes before an action and what comes after it. What comes before it is called the antecedent. And this is what a person is thinking or feeling. It's their experience, their mood in that moment. And it's shaped by the environment, where they are, who they're with, what's happening in that space. And it's also influenced by your personal history of thoughts, assumptions, rules and beliefs. And of course... These have a big influence on what you do and how you handle situations. That might be what Larry's wife is asking him when she puts that question to him. And why you do something is also made up of something else. It's influenced by what comes after it, the consequences. I'm more likely to say hello to someone on the bus I've said hello to before if the last time I did it, they said hello back. But if they ignored me, shunned me, shouted abuses at me. I'm much less likely to. In this episode, I'm speaking with a research scientist and clinical trainer of behavioural analysis. In particular, he has an ambition to teach helping professionals around the world to use clinical RFT, or clinical relational frame theory, so that he can help these professionals in their work with their clients. 
Now, relational frame theory is the study. It's the study of the behaviour of human language and analysing its impact on behaviour. And clinical RFT aims to teach us to become much more sensitive and flexible to moment-by-moment -moment experiences so that we can alleviate both our own and the suffering of other people. I'm delighted to have him on the show today. Speaking from Seattle on the west coast of the US, I'd like to welcome Matt Villat. Thanks for joining me today, Matt. Hey, Jim. Thank you for inviting me. So let's get straight into this. The first question I want to ask you is, what's an example of self-help that you've put to use in your own life? You know, thank you for giving me the opportunity to reflect on, uh, on that. Uh, I really uh, like the, the work I do, the approach that I use in my, in my work, um, because uh, we don't make a big separation between uh, uh, clients and, and therapists, trainers and therapists. And um, it's something that I've, I've learned from the approach from acceptance and commitment therapy in particular, from third wave therapies, this idea that we can use the tools that we, uh, that we use with our clients on ourselves. So really thank you for, for asking me this question. I would say uh, recently, perhaps over the past year, the, the tool that I've used the most in my personal life and actually also in my work uh, is to pay attention to uh, my intentions more. Uh, so the, the purpose of my actions, uh, it might seem like very, very simple, but I've noticed that often when we uh, reflect on the intention uh, of our actions, we, we can be surprised that we are not that uh, aware of uh, the, the purpose, what we are trying to, to achieve with our actions. And when we become more aware of the, our intentions, often something uh, different uh, happens. Uh, we can reorient our actions. We can uh, pay uh, more attention to what is working and not working. Uh, for example, if I'm in a, in a conflict with a, uh, with a friend or with, a, with a, my partner, you know, there's an argument. If I, if I can take the time to, to pause and ask myself, why am I raising my voice right now? What's my, what's my intention here? What's my goal? What am I hoping for? It's a different ways of formulating the, the, the same question in the end. What is the consequence that I would like to see happen? Hmm. Often, it helps me uh, either change what I'm doing right now because I realize it's not that helpful, or I, I might still do what I'm doing, but there is a frame, uh, mindset that is completely different because now, instead of acting in automatic pilot, you know, I'm raising my voice because I'm angry, because I'm upset, it becomes I'm raising my voice because I want to be heard. So now I can pay attention more to uh, the consequence. Is it working? Am I actually more heard when I raise my voice? Perhaps, perhaps not. Do you see what I mean? It makes a, a really uh, big difference. It's, it's quite different, isn't it, to maybe that natural way of thinking and doing that we tend to do. Like, I think we tend to just kind of react impulsively, automatically. And you're saying yes. something different here. I think. Yes, yes. I, I really like what you said here in the, the reacting. Um, I think, you know, in, uh, in a clinical work or in coaching work, I um, often uh, observe that um, clients, people who have difficulties in their lives, often describe their problems 
in ways that uh, reflect uh, what we would call uh, excessive antecedent control, meaning they react, as you said, to things that uh, they are feeling, that they are experiencing, but they don't pay attention enough to what they are trying to uh, get as a consequence. So uh, a big part of the work that we, that we try to do in the approach that I, that I use is to uh, increase the, the influence from consequences, helping clients be a little more under consequential control and a little less uh, only under antecedent control. So like I said, I'm not just raising my voice because I'm angry. I'm raising my voice because I want to be heard. It's a very different mindset. So let me, if I just clarify that, so I understand that correctly, is excessive control or antecedent excessive control would be I'm raising my voice because I feel angry. Yeah. And that's different from I'm raising my voice because I want to be heard. Yeah, well, I want to be heard could still think it's a, it's a feeling, a thought that I have, but now it's oriented towards something I want to see happen as a result. If I say just because I'm angry, it doesn't say anything about what I'm trying to achieve. Even if I said, uh, because I want to feel less angry. Okay, at least it's oriented toward a consequence that I'm trying to get. Uh, but if I say just because I'm angry, or you know, if I said, I've always been like that, or uh, well, in conflict, that's what people do, right? It still doesn't tell anything uh, it doesn't say anything about what I'm trying to achieve. What is my intention? It is, sometimes we say it's, you give a reason, but you don't really give, uh, you don't really give uh, an intention. You don't really describe an intention. So presumably you doing this has helped you to have less arguments. <laughs> you know, it's a, I haven't tracked that <laughs> well, so I cannot really say, but I would say this every time I pause and pay attention to my intention. It makes a big difference. It helps me adjust my behavior in ways that I think are much more workable. And I think I would say, yeah, the arguments become uh, more productive, more respectful. Uh, there is a sense of uh, moving forward instead of just getting stuck, just responding to feelings, being less... Uh, like I said, in automatic pilot or in a sort of a puppet a little bit, you know, you have a sort of control. In this case, it feels more it's under a, a volitional control. You know, I'm, I'm trying to do something here. I'm trying to achieve something. It's, uh, it's, it's very empowering in a good sense of the, of the term, not in the sense of controlling necessarily, but in some sense of having more uh, freedom, more flexibility. What other benefits do you think you've noticed this has had for you when you've done this, or you've been able to do it? Uh, that's a, you know, it's a very good question. Um, if you, uh, if I try to be more specific in terms of the benefits, I would say uh, to, to continue on this idea of gaining freedom and flexibility, I think it helps uh, orient my, my actions toward things that I really care about. Um, you know, when I said uh, I want to be heard, uh, ideally, I don't want to stop there, but also elaborate a little more about why it's important for me to, to be heard. So when I explore the consequences of my actions and my intention, what I'm trying to achieve, I try also to link it to uh, what we call values in uh, acceptance and commitment therapy, for example, 
uh, a direction, a sense of uh, uh, what can bring life satisfaction in a meaningful way. Uh, so even beyond being heard, I might like because I want to uh, contribute uh, to this conversation. I uh, I want to be uh, accepted because I want to connect with you. And so the more I can clarify this consequence, the more I'm in line with what I care about. So to answer your question directly, the benefits is that. I feel more in line with what I care about. I find more satisfaction. Uh, there's more a sense of uh, harmony between my actions and uh, what I think is important in my life. It doesn't mean that it's necessarily successful, uh, but at least I feel like I have more ability to connect with what I care about if I pay attention to uh, my intention, my intentions uh, more carefully. I have the image of you being much clearer about your identity with this, that um, you get a stronger sense of yourself. And so it has benefits for you, it has benefits for your relationships, your work, and possibly every area of your life. Has that been the case? Yes, yes. I, I like that you refer to the sense of identity. Uh, you know, I, I am an immigrant. I've been in the U.S. for about eight years. Uh, I was born in, in France and I spent uh, my first 30 years in France. So I, I've experienced what it's like to move to a new culture and to uh, uh, change, to uh, question myself in terms of identities, values, uh, what's right and wrong. And I think for, uh, for a while, maybe several years actually, I, I think I did experience uh, acting more in automatic pilot, as I was saying. Um, I think it's in part because when you change, you come from a culture to another culture, there's often some worries about not doing things that might be inappropriate, might not fit the new culture. And so you can end up paying attention a lot to what you're doing, just making sure that uh, it's not uh, punished by others or you look at what others do and you do the same thing. Uh, you know, like even for very simple uh, things like... Uh, social uh, social uh, rules uh, about greeting you know in in france we uh, kiss on the, on the cheek to say hello in in the us we we hug each other it's uh, it's a different way of doing it so you you look at what other people do and you try to copy that and it's fine of course you learn social uh, rules by looking at what other people do you you imitate uh, that helps you uh, be accepted and and fit in the group the problem is you also uh, lose contact with the purpose of these actions. By focusing uh, so much and only on what you're supposed to do, you lose touch uh, with what you are trying to do. What is the purpose of what you do? And uh, I've experienced for a while um, being in a new culture, losing touch with what, like you were saying, what's... Uh, my identity, what I what I care about, what makes uh, what makes me, what I my, my my values. After I started to pay attention more to what was important to me uh, beyond the difference of culture, uh, it helped me track more what happens in my interactions with others. For example, like I'm French, I will always be French, really. Uh, even now, I have a U.S. citizenship, but. I, I will always be French. So I will, I will always interact with people with that kind of background. If I only look at what other people do, I might 
refrain from, I don't know, making some jokes, for example, or communicating with others in a way that's uh, more typically uh, French. Uh, thinking it's wrong because other people don't do that. But if I pay attention to what happens, the consequence of what I do, if I pay attention to my, what my intention is, I can actually also allow myself to be a bit different. I can allow myself to have that kind of flexibility and freedom that um, uh, help me, let me be uh, who I want to be. So I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about this and I'm thinking we've got that you can follow rules of a culture to sort of guide you as to what to do. You've got inside yourself what you care about most, the purposes, the intentions, the identity you want to embody. And there's like a choice between the two, possibly. Would the wise thing be that uh, you know when to choose one over the other? Yeah, I think you're formulating it well. It's you, if you understand better what is... Um, what is important, uh, even in the, the social world, beyond the you're supposed to do uh, this or that, you're supposed to greet by hugging, for example. If you can understand the purpose, uh, if you can understand what's beyond just the, the action that is uh, prescribed by the rule, but also the consequence, the intention, it gives you more ability to choose. And there are a lot of things, for example, that I do in the US that I disagree with or I don't like. I wish it was different. And now, even when I go back to France for a visit, I, I also look at certain things in France in the same way. But at least I understand the purpose. I understand how it fits there. And so the more I understand the purpose, the less I find it arbitrary, the more I can also choose to adapt to a, a culture. So it's, it's not so much that there is a conflict between different uh, uh, different rules of course if there are two actions that cannot be done the same way like i was saying the greeting for example you at some point you have to make a choice but this choice is informed by the intention by what you're trying to to achieve i think what you're talking about here speaks to speaks a lot to what people who are listening have probably experienced i guess there's something similar between the us and the uk in that there's been a lot of immigration into those places. Mm -hmm. So people are transcending one or two or more cultures. And I guess kind of trying to find a way to navigate those different rules and also not lose a sense of what they want as an individual as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. You, you use the term transcend and I think it's a very important uh, term. When I was saying I'm trying not to stop at the... A short uh, term uh, goal that I have, but identify the value that's connected to it. It's uh, it's about transcending the the concrete rules or the concrete goals, and that's how we can also find connection and find flexibility. Um, like again, my example of different ways of greeting. Uh, French would find that weird to hug. Uh, Americans find that weird to kiss on the on the cheek. Uh, but if you try to contextualize these actions a little more, then you realize that the intention is the same, in fact. Uh, there is something about connection, uh, knowledge each other, uh, kindness, etc. So at that level, you can find similarity. You can connect with each other. And I think 
when you uh, explore uh, your intention, not just in terms of specific goals, but in terms of values, in terms of abstract uh, concepts, then you find that uh, in the end, people tend to care about uh, pretty much the same things. <laughs> yeah, that's the nice thing. That's the nice thing. So uh, you um, published a book, didn't you? Uh, not so yeah. long ago, a, a year plus ago, called Mastering the Clinical Conversation That's right. Language as Intervention, which you wrote with your wife, Jennifer, mm -hmm. and Steve Hayes, I believe, as well. Yes, that's right. What was your ambition, your collective kind of ambition in you writing this book? Well, the, the goal we had with this book was to um, uh, help clinicians uh, use language as a, as a tool. I think naturally all uh, therapists or coaches, trainers uh, use language as uh, their primary tool in, uh, in their intervention. They, they, they talk with the clients and uh, that's what will uh, help uh, bring some change in the, the client's life. But what we were trying to do is um, use the relational frame theory, which is a theory of language and cognition that can tell us quite a bit about how uh, language uh, works and how it can impact our behaviors. So the, the goal we had was to uh, not to, uh, it's not a, it's not a, a theoretical a book, uh, it's, a, it's a book that's meant really to help uh, clinicians, therapists, practitioners in general uh, think about language uh, as a tool at, uh, that helps them use language and interactions in a more uh, precise and intentional way. Okay, yeah. And so, I mean, that sounds quite sort of uh, new. That sounds quite cutting edge, if I can use that phrase. Do you think you're kind of pioneering something new in the area of psychology and psychotherapy here? You know, I, I think well, we're not the only ones who thought of language as a, as a tool. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of motivational interviewing as, uh, of course, I talked about uh, the importance of, of language to create change, for example. Uh, but probably what's new in our approach is to link uh, this uh, perspective on language to, uh, to behavioral psychology. For a long time, we thought behavioral psychology doesn't have much to say about uh, thinking, about uh, talking. There is not a, a good theory of, of language. And we think that uh, RFT, relational frame theory, uh, has really something good to, to offer. Uh, this, this model RFT was the, the background of acceptance and commitment therapy uh, for decades and it still is um, but I would say it started as the background of ACT and progressively ACT has developed a bit on its own the connection between RFT and ACT are in my opinion not the most uh, obvious uh, nowadays so you're saying is it cutting edge I would say it is in the sense that we uh, took the basic principles of the theory and tried to uh, bring them directly to uh, the therapy room. Instead of teaching clinicians about the theory, just uh, the background, right? Uh, now we think of it more as a set of principles that you can use in your practice. So in that sense, it's, uh, it's fairly new, yes. So you're clearly teaching people how to use this through the book. Um, and I know you're, you're on tour, you're coming to London in, um, on the 8th and 9th of February 
2018 to on a two-day workshop to teach this to clinicians as well yes that's right i'm pretty excited to to come back to london i i came about five years ago at the time when we were still uh writing the book uh so it was very helpful actually to have the the feedback from participants in the in the workshop during the whole process of writing the book we uh connected a lot of uh uh, trainings and supervision and uh, and I think the the process of developing the book definitely uh, uh, was based on this uh, on this feedback we were able to to refine our approach so i 'm pretty excited to come back and to uh, and to show what we 've uh, come up came up with uh, um, after these years of uh, of development mm, okay i 'll put details to uh, find out about how to find out more information about that event and how to book in the show notes at the uh, bottom of this podcast. Okay, so we're talking a bit about your personal use of using intention to help you get clear about some of the choices and decisions you make. There's, that's kind of, seems like it's kind of going on in the professional work that, you, that you're referring to in your book and that you're doing within the workshop here. Do you, have you noticed that uh, they've kind of um, enhanced each other? Like as you've, as you've developed this work professionally, has that had a, a bearing on, on how you look after yourself personally? Yes, I would say yes. Um, I'm always surprised by how much we can still learn from, even from the same principles. Um, I I read new books, I read new articles, but I also reread old books, and I'm often surprised by how much is in old books. Um, I would not say we don't invent anything or uh, we just keep reinventing the wheel. I don't think so. I think talking about the same thing in different ways can be also helpful. But, you know, I often go back to, for example, the first uh, RFT book from 2001, and uh, I'm surprised by how much there is in there that can also be helpful. It's a very... Uh, it's a really scholar book, right? So it's not a book for general audience, even for clinicians. Most uh, clinicians would probably not want to read this book. And yet I have to say, I go back to this book and often I have really big insights for my personal life. Um, for example, um, one way it might be surprising in which uh, learning about uh, theory and philosophy uh, uh, behind, um, behind uh, RFT uh, has helped me is to gain more uh, distance from my own uh, beliefs, especially in uh, in my work. Uh, when I started working on our book, I we had the sense that what we were doing was a sort of truth. You know, like we are going to show what uh, really happens at the level of behavioral principles, and we are going to link clinical practice in science. I was much more. Uh, uh, essentialist, I think, uh, maybe even righteous, uh, thinking <laughs> this is the truth because it's the behavioral principle, so it's the truth. And working on this and uh, learning more about the, the philosophical foundations of RFT, especially uh, um, thinking of the uh, pragmatic truth criterion of functional contextualism. So I know it's a lot of uh, complex terms, but basically it means we don't believe that there is an objective external truth uh, outside of experience. We are interested in how our ideas impact our experiences. So theories are evaluated based on uh, uh, their utility. Uh, and 
and at first it's hard to think this way when scientists the tradition is generally to think that we are trying to find the, the truth that's out there right our experiments are meant to discover the truth and i don't think that way anymore i think more in terms of uh of uh, pragmatism thinking well it's a way of thinking uh, basic principles are a way of organizing our experiences uh, i talked earlier about antecedent action and consequences in the past, I would have said, this is what happens, what really happens. Now, I think it's just a way of organizing my experience that is useful. And to me, it's really an area that's, uh, where you can see the connection from the philosophy to the clinical application in your everyday life, or not even clinical, just your application in your everyday life. Thinking pragmatically uh, without assuming that there is an objective truth to, to be discovered. Mm. Yeah, I can see the shift that you're talking about there. You, you started it with distancing yourself from your beliefs, which you know might seem a bit kind of strange to begin with. Why would we distance ourselves from our beliefs? Mm-hmm. But I just kind of noticed listening to you that you, what comes across is you seem happier with how you see it now than what, how you saw it before as, as it being a truth before. Am I right there? Yeah, I think, you know, of course, the concept of uh, happiness is always uh, whatever we put in there. <laughs> but I would say uh, probably more peaceful, tranquil, you know, um, probably less defensive. Um, I, you know, could think that after finishing a, a book, I would want to defend what's inside. I, I'm excited about promoting what's inside, sharing what's inside. But I, I'm not, I don't think so. I might not be in the best position to to tell, but I don't feel like I have to defend everything that's in there. Having been through the process of building this, uh, this, uh, this approach, I also realized that there are so many ways we could have uh, gone with. Uh, there were different versions of certain chapters, for example, that now are completely uh, uh, changed. And they are not necessarily wrong. And so when you get in touch with, uh, the possibility of uh, building different stories that are just as valuable, that helps you get some flexibility. It's really the same thing as uh, when we work with clients and we try to get in touch with the different versions of ourselves, different thoughts that might contradict each other. There's not necessarily one that is uh, in an absolute way better than the other, uh, more true than the other. It depends on the context. Uh, when you're saying happier, I think, I think it's the, um, the sort of confidence that um, in the end, all that is not, um, it's not that important in a way. It's not that important. The process of, uh, of trying to build uh, useful tools, of uh, exploring thoughts and beliefs and see what could be useful here, to me is what matters most. But which belief is the most important in an absolute way, it's not something that, I'm, that I really care about. It seems to bring us right back around to where you started, this pragmatism, what's useful, is that when you started, you said, the thing that I found useful, particularly in the last year, is paying attention to my intention. That's right, that that's right. You're just looking to see what you're doing as being practical or useful in terms of where you want to go. That's right. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it contributes to thinking more pragmatically. And, and thinking pragmatically doesn't mean uh, 
that we're not interested in uh, in our own histories, in our feelings. Uh, it just means that we keep in mind what is important in terms of values, uh, that we don't just get stuck in uh, in our actions, that following rules uh, without any any purpose. But I also spend time on reflecting on my. Uh, my history is wondering why I feel the way I feel or it's, 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 it's part of what I, what I enjoy, of course. But if I disconnect completely from my intention, I think that's where I become less happy. So we're talking about a what here. We're talking about doing a thing, which is to be intentional. People often say to me when I'm describing things similar to this, yeah, but how, Jim, how do I do that? And I wondered if you could give any tips, things that maybe you've noticed work for you that help you do that more easily. Yeah, one of the ways uh, in which I think we can help people gain the sense that they can, you know, more basically increasing self-efficacy is to look at what we, we have been able to do with the same purpose. Maybe not in the exact same situation, but as I was saying earlier, if I identify my intentions in a broader way, for example, I want to, uh, I want to be heard or I want to contribute, you know, uh, I realize right now I'm raising my voice. Uh, let's say I'm in a meeting and I hear people talk about something, I disagree with them and I, and, you know, I, I raise my voice, uh, I, I interrupt people and I, if I stop, I realize, well, it's because I want to contribute something important for me there. And if I'm, like you said, I was like, okay, but why, what else can I do? Uh, it's a big meeting. How could I be heard without raising my voice? If I reflect on other times when I have wanted to be heard and maybe it worked, uh, if I can look at a variety of situations that I've lived and find some examples where I've been successful at meeting that goal, then maybe there is something that can transfer to this situation. Uh, and also look in the past at what I've done that has not working, that has not worked. I think, of course, it's always possible that uh, someone has uh, never been successful at all in meeting a, a specific goal. And sometimes uh, what's best to do is to uh, teach these skills directly. Uh, if you never learn well, for example, to express your, your emotions or uh, to express uh, uh, from your request, for example, some people never really learn that very well. So you may actually want to learn the, directly the skill. But I think in most cases, people have that in their repertoire, but it, they're not very aware of it. They don't realize that they can actually do it, that they've done it in the past and that it has worked. So I think part of the ways that you can empower someone is to uh, first look at the intention and see if that intention has not been there before. And perhaps even if you haven't been successful at meeting your goal. Great tip. I like it. Looking through your own experience. And I like that. It does seem mm -hmm. really empowering. And you use that word there to just kind of search back through, look for examples and, and I guess kind of look a bit more closely at what you might have done and kind of what worked. I really yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. So Matt, um, what are your, we're coming up to the end of the year. What are your hopes, plans for 2018? Uh, you know, this uh, end of year is uh, always a, 
a time for I think for most people to reflect on the past year and to project themselves on the on the coming uh, on the coming year. Professionally speaking, I have a a few uh, trainings coming uh, in in UK is uh, probably the, the first I think in 2018. But I keep doing uh, some of those trainings uh, uh, outside the US. I'm very excited to uh, uh, keep uh, sharing the, this work. Uh, with uh, people in the community, in particular in the third wave CBT community, but even uh, beyond. And, uh, you know, for me, uh, with over the years, I've also learned to uh, not have uh, too much, um, well, of course I want goals, like I said, intention, but also uh, like to uh, let also things unfold for themselves. It's also good not to uh, uh, be looking constantly for a, for an outcome in your actions. You know, when I said intention, I don't necessarily mean I want something out of this uh, action. It's more like, what is my, how do I want to be? You know, what is the, what are the values that I want to embody right now? Like if you ask me right now, why am I doing this interview right now? Of course I could say, well, it's part of uh, sharing, uh, promoting the book, the training, these sort of things. But I can also put that a little bit aside and just, think, okay, I'm uh, talking with you, Jim, we're talking about uh, this topic of intention. And uh, I'm trying to do it in an open way, because openness is something I care about. I try to be uh, humble, even with my own uh, expertise, because humility is something I care about. So you ask me uh, what I'm uh, thinking of as the year is coming. Well, if I can keep doing that, I think I'll be uh, pretty happy. It's uh, something that's uh, uh, I would like to keep uh, improving probably in my life. Wonderful. I really appreciate you joining me today, Matt. It's been a great conversation. Really enjoyed it. And I um, uh, hope to see you in London next year. Yes, it would be a great pleasure. And thank you for inviting me, Jim. There are some great resources with Matt around. Look at him on YouTube and check out the links to his websites in the show notes. Matt will be in the UK early next year on the 8th and 9th of February in London running a two-day workshop for therapists, coaches, allied health professionals, educators and anyone really in a helping profession who wants to learn more about how to use clinical RFT to help the people you work with. It will help to master the skills of conversation professionally. I'm not talking about being nice to people. I'm talking about understanding language at a much more precise level observing what is said and done, taking conversations in a more purposeful and productive direction. I've seen one of Matt's workshops before in Spain earlier this year, and I can tell you there's something different. He demonstrates how to pay close attention to what's happening between you and another person and shows you ways of using language to help people act less on impulse or automatic pilot and instead find power in making choices about what you do. This workshop is on the 8th and 9th of Feb next year, organised by Joe Oliver at Contextual Consulting. And you can find a link to more information, including book de- booking details, in the show notes. I'd like to wish you a very Merry Christmas, and I'll be back with you in the new year with a little announcement about Self-Help Satnav. You're going to start hearing a bit more from me as we ramp up the frequency of the shows and move towards becoming a guest-focused show. More on that in January. For now, be brave, be gentle and keep moving forwards.